You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Campus Beat. Coming up on November 29th, the Arthur B. McDonald Canadian Astroparticle Physics Research Institute here at Queen's University is hosting a lecture delivered by Dr. Juna Kohlmeyer, Director of the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics, as part of the George and Maureen Ewan Lecture Series endowed by the Ewans in 2018 to increase and support scientific discourse at Queen's, among scientists, and of course, with the wider Kingston community. And with us, today to talk about this lecture series and Dr. Kohlmeyer's upcoming lecture on November 29th is Dr. Mark Richardson of the McDonald Institute. Hello and welcome back, Mark. Hi, Donna. Thanks so much for having me back. I see, it's like I, it's like you've never been here before. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I feel like I was just here. <laughs> Folks, uh, Dr. Mark Richardson has been on this program many times promoting wonderful, wonderful initiatives coming out of the uh, McDonald Institute. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. So many exciting things happening over on, on your end of campus. So thanks for joining us. Um, it, it, it has actually been a little while since you've been on the airwaves. Um, can you remind our listeners about who you are and what you do over at the McDonald Institute? Certainly. I'm the Education and Outreach Officer at the McDonald Institute, and so the Institute itself is the Canadian Astroparticle Physics Research Centre. And so this is a community of researchers across the country and various research institutes who are really trying to understand the, the basic laws that, that kind of explain why the universe is the way it is. And to do this, they are looking at some of the coolest, most incredible astrophysical phenomena that happen in the universe. And so uh, I come into this role. I'm not the one doing that kind of research. I do research related to galaxies and much closer to what Juna will be talking about. But um, my role is in, in bringing those scientists and the really cool results to the public, having them, uh, having these two communities kind of get to talk to each other and have, have these opportunities to learn from each other. Okay, great. So at the top, uh, I talked about the George and Maureen Ewan lecture series. Can we learn more from you about the Ewans, the endowment they made, and the lecture series itself? Yeah, so George Ewan is a, a, a physics professor at Queen's. He recently passed away, actually just about a year ago, um, and he is one of the fathers of the SNOW experiment, so the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. And so this experiment is actually where Art McDonald won a Nobel Prize. So that's, that's the other uh, professor that we are named after as an institute. And George Ewan was really prolific in the department for, for being a bit of a Tony Noble, the scientific director would call him a gentleman of uh, astroparticle physics. And so he really was somebody that tried to bring in everybody into a community and work, work uh, across the department and work with students to really be a collaborative, a team player and, and you know, move the needle of science. He was also one of the first scientists to think of, um, uh, to really focus on using the Creighton line in Sudbury as a location to do state-of-the-art particle physics where you could get under uh, under the ground and therefore um, 
uh, avoid a lot of this, this cosmic radiation that otherwise gets in the way of doing the exciting science and looking at rare events. And so uh, the, the series itself, endowed, as you say, by Dr. Uh, George Ewan and his wife, Maureen Ewan, it was a vehicle where we could bring in kind of world-renowned scientists to, to do to make that kind of impact for our own community that, that George did you know throughout his career. And so we bring in these scientists um, and they don't just give a public talk. They really spend quite a bit of time with the department, with the community, and, and have meetings with their scientists and make connections across the different institutes um, across Canada, and also uh, meet with our students, meet with our graduate students, the, the next generation of scientists, and, and try to, to uh, you know, share, share some of their experiences with that next generation. And so we, we have Juna coming in for a number of days to do exactly that. Mm-hmm. All right. So can, can you tell us a little bit about some of the past lectures that have, uh, that have happened uh, or since 2018, and then we'll launch into uh, what Juna will be presenting on on November 29th? Right, so this is, I believe, the fourth even lecture that we've had since the endowment. Um, and the first was Dr. Barry Barish. He was the director of the Laser Interferometry, Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO, which was the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physics, I believe, in 2016. Mm-hmm. And um, so he was actually our first speaker back in 2018, speaking about that observatory and um, the really, really exciting detections that it had and completely changing our understanding of black holes in the universe, um, which is a a theme that will come up in Juno's talk. Um, And since then, we've also had Dr. David Radford, who does very similar research using the same kind of detectors that George Ewan himself uh, used. So these uh, germanium detectors that are very, very uh, efficient at detecting some of these particle interactions that we're trying to understand um, at the McDonald Institute. We also had Dr. Francis Helzen, who is uh, the director of the Ice Cube Experiment, which is a cubic kilometer detector underground, two and a half kilometers underground in Antarctica. And it um, sees some of the most energetic particles in the universe. And so we had, uh, Francis was last here in February of 2019. And uh, we actually were impacted quite heavily by uh, a blizzard that day, which maybe was no problem for a guy that does a lot of his work in Antarctica, but we um, we had some issues there trying to run an event <laughs> at the same day. Yeah. And so fingers crossed that uh, when June is here, uh, we don't have any big snowstorms happening on November 29th. Fingers crossed. Nobody's ready for a snowstorm. <laughs> <laughs> I got my winter tires yesterday. I'm ready. <laughs> All right, but you're ready. That's what's that's what's super important. <laughs> okay, so let's hear more now from you, Mark, about about what Dr. Juna Colmeyer will be talking about uh, in her talk entitled, I understand, Mapping the Universe. So Juna has a lengthy bi- biography. Um, she is the director of the Canadian Institute of Theoretical Astrophysics. As you said, she's a TEDx alum, so you know she's going to be an amazing speaker. And she's also the director for the fifth phase of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. This is a survey uh, that really made big, big advances in our understanding of our place in the universe and its ability to kind of make a map of all the galaxies, well, not all the galaxies, it's hard to see them all, but 
a lot of galaxies that spread across the universe. And so Juno is going to be talking about her experience and her science doing that, of, of that mapping exercise of looking at black holes, stars, and galaxies as they spread across the cosmos and using that to understand, you know, where do some of the first elements come from? What's the origin and maybe fate of the universe itself? Um, and maybe some of the underlying uh, lessons around physics that uh, the distributions of galaxies tell us. All right, so you, uh, Mark, you mentioned the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, um, and and I and I read somewhere that it uses something called spectra to reveal information about the galaxies, the universe, the cosmos. From your own knowledge as an astronomer yourself, uh, can you explain in layperson's terms, if you will, how this device works to really map out the universe and really decode the history of the universe? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, it is a telescope, which is an amazing bucket for just collecting, collecting a lot more light than your eye can detect. Mm -hmm. And then electronics lets us kind of look at that. And your first instinct might be like, hey, I, okay, I got a telescope. I can now take pictures of fainter objects and maybe magnify it so I can see small scales. And, and you'd be right. And so you're thinking, looking through a telescope and seeing Saturn like you can't see with the naked eye. And that's, you know, amazing uh, information you can get from that. You can take pictures of what's in the universe and learn about the stuff that's out there. But where the really cool and interesting science comes from is when you do spectra of these objects as you uh, you teed up for me. And so spectra is where we take that light that you detect for the image and we put it through a spectrograph, um, which is really just a fancy word for a device that splits, splits the light into its colors. And mm -hmm. people are probably familiar with prisms or even water droplets for doing that, for making beautiful uh, rainbows of the color that we're, we can see with the naked eye. And then you can even do this for the colors that we can't see with our eyes, but we can see with technology into the infrared and into the ultraviolet and beyond. And mm -hmm. so the benefit, I say this, like by putting it into its colors, you can do really exciting science. And one of the ways you do that is elements, the, the building blocks of the universe. If you think back to chemistry, your periodic table, you have hydrogen and helium and carbon and nitrogen, all these different elements, well, they actually leave little fingerprints. They absorb only light of certain colors. And so when you spread light from, say, the sun across uh, a prism and look at its colors, you see there are certain colors missing that are the telltale fingerprints, really the signature of what elements are making up the sun. And from that, you can learn that it's made of hydrogen and helium and carbon. Likewise, you can put the same kind of tool when you look at galaxies and you can find out where gal what galaxies are made of and you know what are the elements that make them up and from that Juna does some research looking at some of the very first elements that are made in the universe um, when the universe started you basically only had hydrogen and helium it's only through the the birth and death of stars that you start making much more interesting elements which is lends itself to what Carl Sagan says in that we are all star stuff and so um and just worried that the furnace affected my audio. Um, You're good. Cool. So, um, uh, <laughs> just to signal that. Right. So, the 
benefit too of using a spectra is um, if you're familiar a little bit with the Doppler effect, um, which is similar to the uh, ambulances here um, going to the hospital as they are, uh, maybe approach you if you're on the side of the road, they are very high pitch, woo, woo, woo. And as they go past you, they, they shift to a lower pitch, woo, 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 woo. Wow, my voice just, <laughs> wow. I really did some Doppler effect. So that is the sound waves being impacted by the, the velocity of the ambulance towards you. That process, that shifting of the sound waves actually happens in the light waves too. So if you're looking at something that is traveling very quickly away from you, then inside the colors, inside the light, things will be shifted to, um, if they're moving away from you, they'll be shifted to longer wavelengths. They'll be red shifted. And so by spreading out the light of galaxies, we're able to realize whether or not a galaxy is moving towards us or away from us. And why does that matter? Well, it's it's pretty exciting. It's about 100 years, actually, this year from when uh, Hubble himself, Eben Hubble, a famous astronomer who has a telescope in space named after him now, <laughs> he did this task and realized that basically all the galaxies that we look at, for the most part, are moving away from us. And this this caused some, some fear in the astronomical community that we all suffer from horrible uh, body odor. Um, but it turns <laughs> out that's that's not the excuse for this. Um, instead, what we like to, to think is there's absolutely nothing special about where humans are in the universe. This is called the cosmological Copernican principle. And so basically what that means is if we did this same measurement that Edwin Hubble did 100 years ago from any galaxy in the universe, you would get the same result. Every other galaxy in the universe would appear to be moving away from you. And the only way that you can actually have that kind of system where everything is moving away from everything else is if the whole universe itself is expanding. And mm -hmm. it's been expanding since the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang. And so when Juna and the Sloan Digital Sky Survey goes out and uh, takes these observations of galaxies and puts through a spectra and gets that that shift, that Doppler shift in the light by finding those signatures as a helium shifted in the light, it reveals to us how fast things are moving away. And if the universe is expanding, then that means actually further things, the, the further away something is, the faster it should be moving. So we can flip that on its head. I can do the spectra, I can do the observation, determine how fast something is moving, and from that work out, how far away is that galaxy from us? And huh. so instead of just knowing where on the sky I'm pointing, which is like a 2D map of the sky of where galaxies are, what the Sloan Digital Sky Survey allows us to do is actually create a 3D map. Now I can determine the three-dimensional location of every galaxy in the sky that I'm looking at. And so from that, you instead of just seeing all the galaxies on the sky, you now break it out into this 3D map. And there's some amazing science that Sun Digital Sky Survey has done as a result of that. They've revealed that the galaxies in the cosmos are oriented in this really neat cosmic web. Um, so instead of just randomly oriented around the universe, galaxies kind of make up this intricate, almost spider web or, or this uh, foam throughout the universe that tells us the fact that galaxies are oriented that way um, and arranged and mapped that way, it tells us some of the, the nature of gravity itself and maybe the beginning of the universe. And so it's just this amazing amount of science and really kind of placing ourselves inside this map, understanding, you know, what is, you know, what is the, 
what is the mapping of the whole universe? It's, it's pretty profound what we can do with something like uh, this, this Sloan Digital Sky Survey. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Thank you so much for all that detail. So now, Mark, where can folks learn more about how they might be able to attend uh, in person or virtually uh, the upcoming lecture delivered by Dr. Coldmeyer? So this talk is, is really going to be so exciting. I hope everybody finds a way to tune in. Um, it's, you know, June is just a fascinating talk and she's going to be talking about so many different things that uh, I think it's going to really excite the curiosity of anybody at home from black holes to galaxies to stars and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and so we want to let as many people join in as possible. The, the event will be happening on Queens campus for uh, select um, Queen's community, just because COVID is still very much uh, an issue here in Kingston, mm -hmm. everybody else is going to be able to tune in at home. But it's not just going to be some dry um, uh, YouTube feed. Instead, you know, we are interactive. Everything that's happening in the comments can be communicated into that space. And so June is going to be available to take questions from those watching online. And so I hope everyone tunes in so that they can get the most out of the opportunity. To find out how to tune in, they need to go to mappingtheuniverse, all one word, dot eventbrite, E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot C-A. Mm -hmm. And there you can find out the registration information for accessing the online stream, or um, if they're a member of the Queen's community, maybe they can come out in person. The event, doesn't matter how you engage, is completely free, and it'll be starting at 7.30 p.m. on Monday. Monday, November 29th. Anything else to add before we wrap today, Mark? Uh, I'm not really sure. I just feel like, you know, right now with uh, COVID still going through, I think this is, you know, it's so nice to be able to still have these opportunities, I think, to connect with the community and connect with um, somebody that is really, really, um, I, I mean, I just want to highlight, like, it's a, a real privilege to have Juna. She's new, newly moved to Canada. She's the new director of CETA. We've not had, she has not had a lot of opportunity to engage with our um, Canadian community about um, both her, her role at the Institute, um, her, the science she does, and so I just think this is just going to be such a fascinating and, and interesting talk. And so I, I hope I hope everybody tunes in. Fantastic. So folks, we have been chatting with Dr. Mark Richardson of the McDonald Institute all about the upcoming George and Maureen Ewan lecture to be delivered by Dr. Juna Kohlmeyer on November 29th, 7.30 p.m. And we've learned quite a lot from Mark today about uh, the mechanics of the universe and what will be discussed by uh, by Dr. Juna Kohlmeyer. So find out more information and uh, participate in these events, So th or this event. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. No, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And welcome back to CFRC. From November 13th through the 15th, record-breaking rainfall and high winds in the lower south coast mainland area of British Columbia caused landslides and mudslides that claimed the life of at least one person in the Pemberton area. Others were reported missing, and the province was compelled to declare a state of emergency as many small communities 
and motorists were trapped on highways between slides, floods, and washouts, and had to be rescued amidst unprecedented infrastructural and environmental damage. In this segment, I'm chatting with Master of Civil Engineering candidate Lisa Toskella about the recent catastrophe in BC and its impact. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And I realize you were in the middle of uh, some experiments uh, today. So we do appreciate your time. Uh, Lisa, tell us a little bit about yourself and your research in the master's program in civil engineering. Yeah, so I did my undergraduate in civil engineering here at Queen's and then decided I wanted to do a bit more schooling. And so I've stayed on with Dr. Andy Take in the Queen's uh, Coastal and Geotechnical Engineering Laboratory. Mm -hmm. a year and a bit in uh, to my research, and I am studying debris flows using our large-scale testing facility. It's the largest one in Canada, and we're doing a lot of really cool experiments and ran one today. We're right in the middle of it, so um, much more relevant right now, but it's been a very interesting experience. Okay, so now I understand you spend a fair amount of your time triggering debris flow landslides at the Queen's Coastal Engineering Lab near Richardson Stadium right here in Kingston. Uh, For our non-specialist listeners out there, what what does this experimentation actually look like? What do you do and how do you do it? Right, so we have... um, a flume, which might not be a word that people know, but it looks like a slide. So it's about two and a half stories tall. And there's a box at the top that can hold up to one cubic meter of material. Mm -hmm. And it's got a door on it. And so we load all sorts of materials. Right now I'm doing a mixture of sand and silt and gravel. Somewhat looks like what you'd see on the ground outside. And we'll load it into that release box. And then we will fill it with water usually jet it with water with a device that looks somewhat like a pressure washer, Mm -hmm. make sure it's wet, and then we open the door and that water will travel, the sandy water will travel down the flume and into a 33 meter long runout zone. So it's very large, it's about two meters wide, wide, one meter tall, um, up to 3000 kilograms of material that we're releasing. And then we have a whole network of cameras. We have a camera that shoots at up to 250,000 frames per second. We have multiple sensors, water sensors, height sensors, um, lots of cameras, lots of data, um, as well as LIDAR scanning. And we're able to get a lot of information out of these tests. Like what kind of information, for example, being able to predict how something will actually flow, the direction it might take, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so what I'm really focusing on is looking at just the fundamental mechanisms of what's going on. So how far is it going to go? How fast is it going to go? What does that look like? And so by doing it this large scale, we're able to get a bit closer to what it looks like out in the field. Yeah, so we're able to get all that information about the shape of the deposit, how far it goes, how fast it goes, really the mobility, as well as there's a lot of sciencey stuff inside the flow that we're looking at, like the water pressure um, and a bit more geotechnical engineering aspects. Okay, all right. Now, understanding a little bit more about the experimentation that you're doing in this field really does help us. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about what happened in BC in the last week. Uh, How were these mudslides triggered? Right, so these ones were triggered by the very heavy rainfall leading up to it. Mm -hmm. Rainfall is one of the requisite parameters for a flow like this. So you can have slope failures 
that are pretty dry. And that's usually because the slope is too steep or they've removed the toe of the slope. And so um, if you can picture you've ever made a sandcastle, you make it a bit too steep, it falls over. Yeah. If you suddenly took a garden hose to your sandcastle, it's going to flow away and it's going to start to fail. And so what we're studying is similar to what's out in BC is very wet landslides called debris flows. And the water, in a way, there's some physics in there, but it, it's it's like it's lubricate, lubricating the grains. They lose their frictional forces. They're no longer touching and they flow like a liquid instead of acting like a solid. And when something flows like a liquid rather than a solid, it can go further and faster than otherwise. Okay. All right. And now with the obvious loss of life uh, being uh, the immediate devastating impact uh, that we've seen in the uh, news reports, what other impacts are there in various realms, including infrastructure and even local ecology? Mm -hmm. There's actually, there's a lot of interesting study out there um, that I don't do, but other people do about um, what happens when all of this material gets into the rivers, what happens when the rivers are rerouted, um, and then a huge one is the infrastructure. So if a road has washed out completely and there's just a 20 foot gap there, that's going to take those road crews a long time to get in there because you got also have to make sure that it's safe for them to be there. Mm-hmm. Walking on these areas, it might not be safe. So they might not even be able to get to it in time. Um, you might need new bridges, repair old bridges, as well as I would imagine just a sense of fear in these communities of, you know, what happens if this happens again, or because they are very unpredictable and unknown. And that's what we're working towards. But if you can imagine a landslide, there's a lot of parameters, there's a lot of information that we don't know about them. Okay. And now speaking to fear, perhaps, uh, amongst uh, community members, amongst the many communities impacted directly by these uh, mudslides, can mudslides be prevented? Like, what should folks think about in terms of safety in mudslides, uh, whether, particularly those who are living in these heavily mountainous areas, but even in not so mountainous areas? What do you think? I think it's all about information. There mm-hmm. are so many slopes in BC, Alberta, Washington, they're everywhere. And to say that you're not allowed to live at the base of any of them. That's a lot of people. And so what you want to you want to be able to know is the slope that I live at the bottom of is that one at risk. And so that's what um, predictive models. So what that would mean is a program that engineers use to predict is this slope going to fail? If it does fail, how far is it going to go? And they can show hazardous areas. So a common frame is the landslide. There's a 90 percent chance it'll go past this line. 50% chance it'll go past this line and a 10% chance it'll reach this line. And then you look at the communities and where do you fall in that range? Are you in the 90% chance it's going to hit you range? In that case, that's not a safe place to live. If you're in the 10% chance, then that's a conversation with the local government and things like that. But we need that information to be able to make these models accurate. And so I think that preventing them is knowing what the risk of the slopes are, as well as there's a lot of other ways you can prevent landslides, because if water is causing them, then um, we can follow rainfall patterns and you can kind of know, oh, this has been a very heavy month of rainfall. Is this adding to the risk? There's also little things, not little things, um, other things like if you remove the toe of a slope, like remove out the bottom, excavating to put a road there, 
um, that could change the safety and you might need to reevaluate as well as trees and vegetation are excellent at removing water from soil and they also their roots are used to keep soil together so clear cutting a slope is a terrible idea um, clear cutting the area above a slope where that water is now going to run down the slope is also going to increase the likelihood of landslides so there's things that civil engineers can do um, and as well as acknowledge that they're doing and monitor so if you are going to clear cut an area mm-hmm. look at those slopes nearby and see um, if it is going to be impacted. Would there be like immediate remediative efforts as well possible? For example, I'm thinking of like controlled blasting that's done in BC to prevent avalanches. Mm -hmm. There's multiple different ways. So you can, um, on a lot of smaller slopes, you can add a layer of uh, riprap or rocks. And so you can cover that slope and give it a bit more strength. You can regrade the slope. That might be a bit of an expensive option. You can put in pumping wells or uh, different ways to remove the water from the slope. There's a lot of options um, that civil engineers have to mitigate this. All right. Well, thank you very much for enlightening us about uh, about the science of what's happening in BC or what has happened in BC and uh, telling us a little bit about uh, the work that you're actually doing right here at Queen's University too. Thank you very much for joining us. Folks, we have been chatting with Lisa Tuskella, a master's candidate in the civil engineering program. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.